Hello and welcome to So What We're Saying Is. Now I usually do quite a long preamble as where, by way of introduction for my guests, but uh, today I don't need to do that. He's been on the show a number of times before, always proving very, very popular. Peter Hitchens uh, is a columnist for the Mail on Sunday. He's also the author of numerous books, uh, one of which is called Brief History of Crime, came out in 2003. It was then reissued as the abolition of liberty, uh, updated a year or so later. The reason I mention this is, of course, uh, crime and policing has been very much in the news. Um, Peter, thank you very much for joining, joining us. Um, I mentioned that there. We've had this case of Wayne Cousins, uh, a police officer, being uh, charged and convicted of the murder of Sarah Everard. And, before that, we've had the general behaviour of the police throughout the pandemic, but also in response to such things as Black Lives Matter. So, the media are saying there is a crisis of confidence in the police. Um, you see the roots of this is going back much, much further, don't you? Oh, much further, yeah. I mean, when you read the book, you, you actually went, basically, it was a, also a brief history of the police force, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Um, do you think that the police are unique in the way in which they have developed over the past few decades, or is it just part of another thing? Well, they were an important, in my view, conservative and very English institution, which was set up in complete distinction from continental police forces. Uh, what people don't realise when they read about Robert Peel's founding of the police is that Parliament had for many years resisted the formation of a police force in this country, particularly in London, despite very high levels of crime and disorder in the metropolis, because they had seen continental police forces become engines of oppression. Basically what they were, they were state police forces, they were armed, they were uniformed, they were special bodies of armed men, as uh, Karl Marx referred to them whose job was to enforce the will of the state. And they did not think that in our uniquely free country, such a body could be trusted to exist. And Peel's genius, and the genius of the early commissioners of the Metropolitan Police, was to overcome this by having a completely different sort of police force from anything ever previously seen, unarmed, uh, with uh, very, very subfusk, unimpressive uniforms, uh, not given special powers. Uh, but really required to derive their powers from the consent of the people and to be extremely cautious in the exercise of those powers rather than to rush into them and above all to be present, to be present on foot in every neighbourhood all the time, constantly patrolling with their prime job, the prevention of crime and disorder. Uh, the, the other tasks of, of detection and pursuit and prosecution came a very, very poor second to those. The whole idea of them was to be there to deter the, the, the growth of disorder and to deter the commission of crime. Fantastically effective. And as I say, utterly different from the, from the police forces of any other country then existing. And this persisted because it worked uh, with amazing success and considerable popularity uh, right up until really the middle of the 20th century. Uh, and then, with a sort of series of big bangs, it was removed. It was removed, I think, most urgently because it was seen to be expensive, uh, because the, the growth of quite high-wage, unskilled uh, labour was causing a recruitment problem, uh, which was a, a problem for many of the long-standing state employers of Britain in the, in the 1950s. Uh, but also, I think, there were people who saw this as an opportunity to change the nature of the police, because what they also did was they reflected a very conservative view of what a society should be like. They were expected, really, to enforce not just a criminal code, but a moral code. I think it would, was true that certainly up until the middle 1950s, if a police officer got divorced, it would be a, 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 a black mark against him. Uh, they were expected to live very proper uh, lives. Unthinkable, I think, in those days for a police officer to have a criminal conviction of any kind. Uh, whereas now those things are, of course, totally not true and the, and the police are utterly different in many ways. But it, it was a, it, it's so many, there's no single cause for any of the great changes in Britain in the 1950s and 1960s. There are many, many causes, but certainly I think it's true 
that the social democratic view of crime as a social disease caused by poverty, deprivation, bad housing, uh, abuse in childhood and all these other things, that became current at about the time the police force was hugely reformed and the police force that it changed into then became what I call a, a sort of army of paramilitary social workers who perform a completely different function in a completely different way. But for a long time they looked the same. And my, the reason why I wrote the book was partly because I'd written The Abolition of Britain and I'd, I'd realised in, in the course of writing it there was an awful, awful lot I did not know about why and how the country had changed. I'd come back from two stints abroad, really, I'd, be, I'd been abroad effectively for rather more than five years, and I kept thinking, well, surely the police used to patrol the streets in this country, and I can't see them, what's happened to them? And I, I, I began to look into why, and the book was a product of that, of, of that inquiry, and then it, it, as these things so often do, it led me down several other quite broad highways into other bits of knowledge which I hadn't previously known. I lacked. The whole the whole of life is discovering how ignorant you are about everything, and I discovered I was ignorant about that, and tried to put it right a bit, and for other people as well. You mentioned there, Peter, uh, the social democratic attitude to, to crime. Yeah. In a way, uh, would it be correct to say, therefore, that you know, if if you no longer think that crime is actually a personal responsibility, uh, it changes the whole way you please. Yes, of course, there is a, there's, it, this isn't a hard and fast thing. Uh, I, I, I use the term social democratic, though I sometimes would refer to myself as a social democrat when it comes to economic policy on things like nationalisation, for instance, because it's not, it's not a communist idea about crime. It's a very modern idea about crime held by people who re regard themselves as enlightened, that those who commit crime have often not done so because of a voluntary failure to abide by the law or, 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 or a personal wickedness, but because of their conditions. And if you generally believe that, then the whole idea of criminal justice which existed in this country really up until the middle 50s is, is intolerable because it, it basically assumes that someone commits a crime, they've done it because they wanted to and out of, out of a spirit of, of wickedness and they deserve to be punished and that, and that if they can't be deterred then they should be punished. Mm. And that, that also governs the whole nature of the prison system which you then run. Mm. Uh, you don't. We, we now claim to have a system based upon rehabilitation. In fact, there's no evidence in the whole of human history that anybody has ever been rehabilitated by a prison or anything else. Uh, but that's the, the, the that's the basis on which we do it. We say the punishment consists in the in the in the loss of liberty, but the prison itself is not supposed to be punitive. And so it's changed completely the way in which in which we treat people who are convicted as criminals. And then we have the whole system. Nobody is now. You notice if somebody is convicted in court. Uh, they're almost never sentenced immediately. They're almost invariably remanded for what used to be called social inquiry reports. So the social workers step in to, to offer their own opinion and the sentence can't be given until this has been... Yes. The whole nature of the system changed about this time. Uh, and my view is very strongly that the new system doesn't work, whereas the old system did, which is one major test. But the, this, this is one of the reasons why it's such a wide and deep subject and, and touches on so many different things. Um, you mentioned there about coming back from being away and, and seeing you know, the police not patrolling. Um, <clears throat> there was this, I mean, I think in one of the presentations you've given about the police, you, you say that in fact uh, this idea of not enough manpower has been used as a kind of reasoning behind this, but in fact it's not really. It's not, and the figures are in my book, and I've also done a, a blog posting on the same subject uh, called Shock New News, uh, and it's, it contains the figures which I obtained in the days when the Office for National Statistics actually had a building that you could go to and you could pull down from a shelf government statistics on the numbers of police, which I did and laboriously copied out. With them. <laughs> That's where I got them from. They are official figures. And what they show is that both in raw numbers and per head of the population, uh, the size of the police force is immensely bigger now than it was in the middle 60s when the police were transformed from a preventive foot patrolling force into a reactive force which waits for crimes to happen and then rushes with lights blazing and flashing and sirens screaming to the scene. And it's actually much more labor intensive to run this extremely ineffective form of policing than it was to run 
a, a, a foot patrol system. The other thing, of course, which people don't often realise is that the police have lost a lot of functions they used to have. They used to run the prosecution service, which was then handed over to the Crown Prosecution Service. Uh, they used to have absolute responsibility for the security of commercial premises, which has now been transferred to private security firms. And they also dealt very much with parking uh, as one of, the, one of their main responsibilities. And they've, all these things they've, they've lost, and they've simultaneously been given a very large number of back office, non-uniformed staff uh, to do a lot of the bureaucracy which they have to do, which they no longer have to tackle. So not merely have they got a technically a lighter task to perform, but they've got more people to help them with it. And yet they claim that they can't do foot patrols. The reason they don't do foot patrols is they don't believe in them and they don't want to do them, not because they haven't got the people to do them. Uh, it's because they want to do an entirely different task. Well, what it is, in terms of the public, I don't know, I don't believe they actually serve the public anymore. They serve, and this is the, the huge distinction which I, I now make, we now have a state police force which serves the state, yes. rather than a, what was actually, actually a people's police force which served the people, uh, what I call the army of the respectable. Yes, exactly, and you alluded to it at the very beginning, this idea in, in, in Europe that it was very top-down, whereas the police kind of came from the work, from the working class, in a way. Well, they did. They, they Generally, they were recruited from the working class, but also they drew, in most circumstances, when they had to use the, what authority they had, they drew that authority from the people around them, from the trust yeah. and support of people. They could control the situation by force of personality, but also by the knowledge that generally uh, people who in, in, in the street around whatever they were doing supported what they were doing and that was a the, the, this is what policing by consent really means that they're enforcing a law which is actually believed in by the, by the people who uh, who are um, who are living in that society at the time now it's a fascinating thing one of the, there was a period it seems to have come to an end now because people don't dare there was a period when the quite a lot of people tried to defend their own premises against burglars and were often very severely prosecuted for it and the police seem to take this more seriously than almost any other action. Uh, I, I felt very strongly they were enforcing a monopoly, mm. that they didn't want to see that old-fashioned law uh, where defence of your own property was, was pretty much sacrosanct and permitted. They didn't want that to be enforced by anybody precisely because it was popular. They wanted to, to, to introduce an entirely new concept of how property could be protected, which did not allow the individual yeah. uh, what the what American law calls defensive habitation. Mm. It's one of the big divergences between the two forms of English law in, in the United States and in, in Britain. In, in the United States, defensive habitation, your, your freedom to defend your own home against uh, against intruders is almost absolute, whereas here it barely exists at all. Yes, yes. That didn't used to be the case. Mm. This point about them now being state police force, I think uh, that's something I sort of almost in instinctively feel, you know, when I, when I see them approach the... But see the way they dress. Yes. yes. They dress, they don't, the, the old police uniform was a respectful uniform, the, 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 the neat tunic, the, 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 the polished buttons, the, uh, the concealed weapon, uh, everything about it was deferential and peaceable. Now they go about with a, with a whole kitchen sink load of, of, of weapons and pepper sprays and clubs uh, and, and handcuffs on open display, uh, which always seems to me to, to contain as an implicit assumption that they're in danger from the people. And when they do go out, they almost always go out to scenes of crime where the only people they meet are the victims of the crime and to some extent the criminals. Their contact with ordinary members of the public has almost completely ceased. Go to a police station now, if you dare, or if you can find one. And when you go into the entrance, if it's open, which it probably won't be, but if it is open, there will be armoured glass on the desk. And behind the armoured glass will not be a police officer, but will be one of these back office staff. You, it's very hard to actually meet a police officer yes. uh, as such anymore uh, in the street. You're not going to ask them the time uh, or say hello to them. They aren't going to know who you are either as they walk down your street or, or, or stand chatting outside the pub or the, or, or, or the shop where you shop. They're not there, they've gone, because they serve a different master. Well, they've gone <clears throat> until something like, for example, uh, 
the pandemic came up, but I, I live in Woolwich and never see peace. And then suddenly... Well, it is remarkable. There are occasions, demonstrations, football matches, when you suddenly realize how many of them there are, mm. and you wonder where they keep them. I mean, generally, you could look at an English city and say, well, if, if, if the entire police force of this country uh, were to be abducted by aliens, how long would it take for us to realize they'd gone? Mm. Because as they're not there normally, if the aliens abducted them, how do you know they weren't there? What is it that they do? Uh, certainly they don't serve us in the way that they were originally hired to do, that's my view. What is behind this urge to make them graduates as well? Well, graduate, the, 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 um, I think Woodrow Wilson summed this up, that we, he, when, when anybody um, came to university, the whole idea was to make him disagree with his father about everything. That he would be with, if anyone came to a university that Woodrow Wilson ran, then he would end up, uh, end up changing, his, uh, changing his ideas and, and, and make them different from his father. Now, of course, the great transmission belt of conservative thought, of tradition, of the law of the tribe has always been the family. And it, the, edu the education system increasingly, and this is also applies to schools in my view, increasingly turns children away from that law of the family and gives them a different set of loyalties and beliefs. But university now, absolutely, and this is one of the reasons why all these arguments about, about uh, political correctness in universities are so important, university is absolutely a place where people go to be, to be graduated in the new ideology of the country, which is equality and diversity and uh, separated from any other trend or strain of thought that they previously belonged to. So a graduate can be relied upon, can he not, or can she not, uh, to have yes. the correct opinions. And I think that's got a lot to do with it. Uh, the old grammar school leaver coming straight out of grammar school and going on the beat, who knew, uh, who knew his neighborhood, knew his neighbors, and had basically brought up with common sense as a rule, uh, is, is not wanted. Uh, especially, certainly not wanted in the, uh, in, the, in the higher ranks of the police and probably not wanted at all now, so that's no surprise. Do you think, do you agree with the, this kind of common, it's a bit of a cliche, but this idea, oh, well, it's not the coppers, you know, the ordinary guys um, and, and women, it is actually the top brass who are the problem. So at the moment, that would happen to be Cressida Dick. Um, I don't feel that because of having when I was on the London Assembly, I was on the Police and Crime Committee yeah. and did a lot of scrutinising and everything. And it seemed to me that actually there had been a total change in attitude throughout, actually. But do you think it is a question of the top, you know, people like Chris Dick or Bernard Hope? No, there was a transitional period. But I predicted an amazingly long time ago that Cressida Dick would become Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. Mm. I've still got the cutting somewhere. I, it, an amazingly long time ago when I first read about her uh, when she was uh, working for the Thames Valley Police being uh, adventurous in her, um, her how she dealt with demonstrations and things like that you could see this is someone who was destined for the top this has been going on for a very long time it had been going on for there was a there was a, I think a Kent police manual which I, I once wrote about which uh, which showed how very strongly training was tending towards the equality and diversity model and that uh, political correctness was becoming the standard form of belief which was expected of the police officer. And then the McPherson report came along, a document which hardly anybody except me has read. Uh, absolutely fascinating, gripping document. Uh, and this was the basis for what then became a thoroughly politically correct inquisition of every police force in the kingdom. And after that, I think very few people were left from the old, the old dispensation. There was a complete, as I said, there was a transitional period where you had uh, upper echelons who were very much, uh, very much of, of the new belief, and the, the constables and the old, the old stages in the CID who, who were not. But I think that's over now. I think the, I think the process is complete. There may still be some individuals who believe it. I used to get letters and, and emails from serving police officers saying I'm absolutely right. Now I tend to get letters and emails from retired police officers saying I'm right. Yeah, uh, yeah. But from, from serving ones, I often get quite a lot of hostility. Uh, and particularly if you're on social media, it's, it's one of the most tedious, it's nearly as tedious as arguing with marijuana advocates, is arguing with a police officer who support the existing arrangements. Yes, uh, on social media, for example, there was 
a clip recently, and I can't remember the force, but it wasn't. It was in the uh, service. They're not. They're not a force anymore. <laughs> oh right, of course. Uh, force, uh, force isn't social democratic. It's in the Midlands, but it was a. It was a. It was this police movement. Was in the street, explaining to this person how words were exactly the same as violent acts. He was saying, you know, which is is that not the very essence of a lot of. Uh, you know, uh, Wokery, call it what you want. This idea that somehow words are just the same as actions. Well, I, I, I would agree to some extent that words, in certain circumstances, can be very uh, intimidating, and I don't, I don't, I don't doubt that. The, 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 the most untrue thing I was ever taught: sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me, because it isn't true. So I, I'm not fundamentally, utterly against that. But what's certainly true is the police have become much more interested in policing what people think and say than they have in, what, in policing what people do. And since English law, as it formerly existed, really very much concentrated on whether someone had done something or not, uh, with intent sometimes important, but the, the, the action being, there's no point worrying about whether someone had an intent to murder if they hadn't murdered anybody, or they hadn't killed anybody. But uh, now an awful lot of uh, racially, uh, racially aggravated um, or hate crime uh, prosecutions uh, delve quite deeply into what the person thought or said as much into what he did. And so the law has changed enormously, but again, it hasn't changed in a great Bolshevik revolution in which we have one law substituted for another and the old police force sacked en masse and replaced by something, a new militia. It's changed in this Kierkegaardian way where everything, at least to begin with, looks the same, but it's totally different. And this is how it's all done. And, and, and most people don't, for most of their lives, have much contact with the police. And so they continue to believe, because they see these people in blue uniforms, uh, looking like police officers, they continue to believe that the police force of their childhood and young, uh, and young years is the, same, is the same one as the one we have now, but it's utterly different. Mm. And then they encounter it. A crime is committed against them, and all the police do is say, well, you can have a crime number, we're not coming. Uh, or they're accused of something which is actually a thought crime. I think, what's this? How did, how did that happen? Yes. It's completely changed, but the, the, the British Revolution has been one of the cleverest ever to be accomplished because it changed everything uh, without people noticing. And by the time the change was complete, it was too late for anyone to do anything about it. Very quick amount, of, a very short space of time to really... Oh, I don't know. I, if you, you, go, you can go back to some of this the very early 60s. I mean, for instance, the, the change, the, the, this, I absolutely insist on this. Uh, television dramas have a huge impact on the way people think. They're an immensely important form of propaganda. And the change from Dixon of Doc Green to Zed Cars uh, it was, actually took place at the moment when the, the transformation of police began as well. When they, the Zed Cars, instead of Dixon walking around Doc Green in his big size 15s. It was, it was, it, it was much rougher guys driving around uh, Merseyside in Ford Zodiacs, and a completely different thing from the start. And and, and, from, and, and the whole the whole nature of the police was changing way further back than people realised. The actual abolition of foot patrol as a requirement although it took some time fully to take effect, was agreed at a meeting in the Home Office in, I think, 1965. Which I read that, it was a, you, you pinpointed... I found the meeting, yeah. An actual meeting where, yep. yes. And this was where they... But wasn't it the case that, again, they were using this idea of lack of manpower? There was a, yeah, but it was true. And there was. And they, there was lack of resources. This was before the governments had realised you could borrow money endlessly without anybody <laughs> caring. And also... Uh, when the, the, the levels of wages in, uh, in unskilled jobs had, had gone up hugely, which is for all the, all the old occupations, like the railways and the post office and the police and the armed services for that, had said, well, we offer you job security. Yeah. The pay isn't as good, uh, but if you work for the state, your job is secure. And then suddenly uh, they, they've, the, uh, they found that the, it appeared that there were secure jobs available for unskilled Workers outside these uh, outside these places where you didn't work as hard and the conditions were were perfectly nice and the wages were very high and this was a very big characteristic of that period the the, the so-called affluent society 
which the sociologists were so excited about in the in the late 50s and, and early 60s, undermined a lot of the old stable things. And one of the things they undermined was the bit. So it's true, uh, but when you see how many how many people they employ now and how much they spend on them, and the enormous budgets for equipment of, of cars and uh, electronics and helicopters and all the rest of it which they consume, it's ridiculous yeah. to compare it with the, uh, the the comparatively tiny amounts of money we spent on an effective police force before. Yeah. But yeah, money was often the excuse. I don't think Jenkins really knew what he was doing directly uh, when he when he when he made that change. Though I think he did know when he amalgamated local police forces into much bigger, much less genuinely local forces. I think he did know then that this would, this would make the police much more the tool of the state and much less the tool of their, the, the, the people through their own neighbourhoods. The smaller police forces were much more responsive to public demand for what they wanted to do. They couldn't. They couldn't now, if we still had the sort of tiny police forces they have in the United States and the small ones we used to have before the 67 reforms, they couldn't get away with not, not, with not bothering to investigate burglaries because they would be too local to get it. People would know the chief constable and, and the, 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 the local council would, would, would have contiguous borders with the local police force and they would be discontented. But Thames Valley Police Force, what is it? And it includes Oxford and Milton Keynes, for goodness sake. <clears throat> yeah. it, it can't conceivably be, be local or responsive to local demand. It's just a blob. Uh, and it, ultimately, it's under the control of the Home Office, and that's, that change was huge. Yes. I, mean, I, I found last year, I mean, again, these would have been local, please. What is it, local? Not local in the sense of what you're talking. But I found them quite chilling. Whether, whether it was, I don't remember seeing the police. But the policeman during the course of the statute, anyway, yeah. more or less saying, you know, actually, uh, that um, I let it happen because uh, we didn't want to have any further tension, and sort of very being very, you know, almost in collusion. It appears. Well, this is because the, the, along with the merger of the police forces came. It's gone now, but came the start of the Bramshill Police College which again created a, an officer class of senior police officers who were very much in tune with modern thinking and again began to think politically, much more politically than they used to. It used to be explained to me uh, the difference between the French gendarmerie and the English police was that if you had a, a bunch of people sitting down on the road at the docks in Dover, uh, the police would come along and they would arrest them for obstruction and take them away. If a bunch of French people uh, came and sat down in docks in Calais, the gendarmes would come along, ask them who they were, go and ring up Paris and find out whether this was the kind of demonstration they had to break up or the kind of demonstration they had to leave alone. Mm. Well, now, it, actually, it's identical on both sides of the channel. Uh, the police yes. take, uh, it, it, the police check to see what the political attitude is, and therefore, if it's Extinction Rebellion, they get a much lighter touch uh, than if it's some anti-vaccine lot. So, it, it, the, the, the law is not, is not impartially imposed as a law, it's a politicised law imposed by a politicised police force. Exactly, because it's, it's hard now n not to feel that there is utterly selective policing when it comes to demonstrations. I think, I can't, I, it just seems to me, I, I wish it weren't true, but it just seems to me to be undeniable. Mm -hmm. I have no great sympathy with either of the groups I just met, mentioned, yeah. but it's clear that they're treated differently when they appear on the street. Mm -hmm. Whether it's Extinction Rebellion or Black Lives Matter. You wrote recently, Peter, but I, th I think you've written this before, not that long ago. Probably. I've often had to write things many times <laughs> before anybody notices anything I say. That the whole thing should be scrapped and we should start again. I think it's the only, the, uh, the only logical conclusion now, that if you, just as you remember um, when some nationalised industries came to an end, a lot of the, the people who tried to replace them said, well, we're not hiring from the people who used to work for them because they've got into working habits which make them completely unsuitable for the new kind of services we intend to, uh, we intend to um, supply. And I, the, no doubt there will be some people among the existing police who could be retrained to, to go out in all hours in, uh, in, in, on foot patrol and work as preventive police officers and to become friendly with the public and to, uh, and to support the public and basically be public servants again and not carry great uh, racks of equipment around with them that revert to the concealed truncheon and the, 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 the generally restrained uh, view and I think there are probably people in the police force who, who could if they if, if they were asked nicely actually investigate a burglary for mm. instance uh, and, and, and arrest a vandal 
uh, and things like that, which they don't seem to like doing very much now. But I, so, among the vast numbers of people who now serve the police, I'm not saying there's nobody who could be a policeman as I imagine the job. But I think what you have to do is you have to recruit over perhaps two or three years and train a new police force on the lines originally devised by Robert Peel and the first commissions of the Metropolitan Police. And when they're ready, uh, then you close down the old lot and move in the new one. Would you reopen police stations? Absolutely. And I would say police stations, they would be police stations in populated and busy areas, not as they are now, office blocks often in industrial estates on the edges of town. They would be headquarters of law enforcement in the areas where people lived and worked and moved and had their being. I'd also put police houses back in, in villages and very definitely have the police in, in, in rural areas again instead of having to drive miles when called to some, uh, some country roguery, which they do now. Because you need the intelligence provided by people living among the people they serve. I would try and bring back police houses as well, which I think were a very, yes. a very useful thing where the police lived, uh, not just in villages, but in towns. And there, were, there were actually areas where the, where the police lived together and people knew where they were. This had an effect on the neighborhoods where they were, very much so. Well, quite near to where we are now in Pimlico, there was a big police uh, uh, estate, actually. It was a, I don't know whether it still is, it might well be. Yeah. But, uh, what about the general standard of the way, I mean, you know, without to sound too much like even more, I, I feel that the way even, the, the, you can see the, 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 the change in function is, you say, there's all this stuff hanging off, but there's also a kind of sloppiness often now as well, I find, you know. Same thing, I mean, if the, who are you serving? Mm, and yes. uh, I mean, I, I did, um, I remember years ago on Daily Express, I did a column about the problem that the police themselves now often look pretty uninspiring. And, uh, and I, I had um, Graham Allen, who did a weekly cartoon for me then, I said, can you, can you draw this scene? And he did it beautifully with, the, with this, this man coming out of his house and going up to a group of people hanging around the street, really shifty looking people, saying, go away or I'll call the police. And they replied, we are the police. <laughs> I mean, baseball caps, for goodness sake. <laughs> they always seem to put on baseball caps when they're about to do something pretty awful. Yeah. And they, but then there's the other thing, this, 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 this state police thing is very much in London, uh, you notice this, sometimes in the provinces outside courtrooms. You see these people who have the word police stenciled on their uniforms and they're holding submachine guns mm -hmm. and they're wearing baseball caps and they have the bandoliers and uh, frying pans and we're dangling from them and great big whopping great kicking boots on. Thing. How, when I see this kind of police officer hanging around, for instance, Paddington Station, I think, against whom is this person protecting me? When I see them there, I, th I hurry through in case, I mean, here they are, I mean, the, the, the Heckler and Koch. Uh, what if that went off? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I just don't, I don't want it. It's not, it doesn't serve me. And, and an awful lot of these people uh, do their main jobs. And again, I see them a lot around Kensington. Is guarding of embassies mm -hmm. or guarding of politicians, and they are effectively sentries. Now, my view is, if, if these places, uh, if, if embassies and p political buildings are so under threat that they need armed guards, we have an army. Uh, Boris Johnson recently tweeted, uh, saying, "We are the party, the Tory party, of law and order." Um, for me, that is an absurd claim to make. I just wonder. When you think they were the last party of law and order, they might supposedly, uh, you know, stand up more for the police and and for the courts and these sorts of things. But but when would when could they really seriously last have made that? Well, they happen? never were. It wasn't it wasn't that they were the party of law and order. It's, it's, it's that they weren't not the party of law and order for a large part of their existence. They didn't uh, they didn't actually undermine law and order or anything. They did. But they, the, the, the design of the police forces in the 19th century, which they inherited, uh, was not theirs, but they didn't, they didn't actually undermine it until, and this is the problem with a party which has no dogma, uh, but is confronted by another party which does, uh, bit by bit, uh, if they won't argue with what, with what the Labour Party is doing, and they, they had no real argument with what the Labour Party was doing in the 1960s. And for instance, there were Tories calling for a national police force which is an outrage in my view because it's, you, it, it's the freedom of the subject depends amongst other things on, a, on, a, on no concentration of power such as the National Police Force. Mm -hmm. 
uh, who had raised no opposition to Roy Jenkins' uh, mergers of police forces and destruction of local small ones, uh, did nothing whatever about his, um, the, the other reforms. They continued, the, the Jenkins reforms of the Sixties continued under Heath and continued under Thatcher. It's not that the, the, the Tories were, were ever the party of law and order, they like to pretend that they were, it's that for a long period they didn't actually undermine it, but then they joined in the undermining. And yes. their, their lack of understanding of the issue is pitiful. You, 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 every time I hear a politician say, we will put more bobbies on the beat, I write them off. Mm. I, anybody who knows anything about this knows that there hasn't been such a thing as a bobby or a beat for something in the region of four decades. And it's, it's, to talk in those terms is to, is to show that you don't understand what's going on. Yes. Or to accept these arguments that, that it's all about numbers and say, well, we will recruit more police officers. Well, you can recruit, you can recruit, recruit a million people into the police force as it is now, and it would make no substantial difference. I, the, one of the fascinating things that I discovered when I wrote my book was the 999 service, which was originally developed because of a, a tragedy when the, 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 no one could get through to the police in 1930s London, and so a special number was devised. But once uh, people had telephones in large numbers, and once the police didn't go out on patrol and weren't accessible any other way, the number of phone calls they got through 999 very rapidly became impossible to handle, and for a very long time. Mm. If people ring 999, they have to be put through a series of trials before they actually get anywhere. And even if they think they've got somewhere they may well not have done, it simply doesn't work. Yes. It's not the, because the extent of, of crime and disorder which, which begins to exist, and the desire of the public to report it, which begins to exist, uh, once you've stopped being on preventive patrol, is so huge that there's nothing you can do about it. You would have the whole country hired for the police force, you couldn't control it. And I think the, the, the reason why it hasn't become a total crisis is that gradually the public have learned there's no point in calling 999 most of the time. Mm, yes. And I'll say that sometimes you might not, you know, in, in an absolute dire emergency, you, you will get through and, and things will happen. But in general, because you can't reach the police really seriously mm. in any other way now, people try to use the other numbers, you try, try doing that sometime. Uh, people use 999 simply to make contact with the police, and they can't. There's always been a, there's been an argument too as well about the police, uh, which you tend to hear as well in more conservative uh, quarters, which is that their hands are tied. Uh, you know, they they do this very hard job, and then they're let down by lenient sentencing, and they're let down by the courts, and uh, and all of that. I mean, do you think that's a oh, there's a huge element of truth in that? I mean, the, the Police and Criminal Evidence Act of 1984 and its codes of practice, which have to be taken together basically assumed that the police were bad uh, and couldn't be trusted to do the job that we paid them for. And there, there had been a number of cases, the Maxwell Convict case and various others, which had produced a great deal of worry about whether the police could be trusted. And the response to this among liberal legislators, and remember 1984 uh, was a conservative government, uh, and many of the liberal legislators were conservative MPs. The response to this was to say, well, in that case, we must put the police under tight control and, and PACE and its codes of practice mm -hmm. came into being. Also, the, increasingly, the, um, the, the rules of evidence became more and more constrained so that trials, as one chief constable notably said some years ago, become more about uh, w whether we can actually introduce evidence than about whether the person involved is guilty. So the, 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 the ability to convict uh, was was much restricted because of and this is because people had behaved badly yeah. uh, and, and because of, of malpractice and wrongdoing which undoubtedly took place I think it was the wrong response myself mm. I think you needed to have uh, to do something about the discipline of the police and the, the, the training of them and the authority in them rather than, than assume that they were all bad and the other point of course is that so much of, 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 uh, of, of there's a very simple point here every arrest and every trial, every conviction is a failure of policing. The police are there not to pursue crime once it's been committed, because they can't unburgle you, mm. they can't unstab you, they can't unmug you. Uh, if they can do first aid, they can patch you up a bit, but that's about it. Mm. Their job is to prevent you ever being burgled or mugged or stabbed. And the, the arrest is, is, is not a success. A police officer with a big arrest tally is not a successful police officer. 
A police officer whose patch is free of crime and disorder is a successful police officer. But once the withdrawal of the police in the streets and the evisceration of the criminal justice system and the removal of deterrence from many crimes began to take effect, then really there wasn't much you could do. And even the tough sentencing so-called and all the rest of it, uh, doesn't, it probably isn't going to work anyway. The, the, the way in which the criminal justice system works is, first of all, by convincing people they'll be caught if they do something bad, which foot patrolling was very good at. And secondly, that on first contact, you realise it's serious. So I'm not saying that the, 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 the person who's, uh, who's the first offender should have the book thrown at him or her and, the, the, and be, be thrown into a dungeon for the rest of their life. But if they are given a caution or a warning, it should be made absolutely clear that this is a real caution or warning and that the second time they're in big trouble. But in fact, these days, probably anybody who goes to prison, except for homicide, will have committed 30 or 40 crimes before they go there. Mm the first 10 of which they would have committed with impunity because no one will have reported them and nothing would have been done about them. The next 10 of which may have led to, to fines, unpaid, uh, suspended sentences, unactivated, uh, and all kinds of warnings. And then finally, the criminal justice system gets really, really tired of them, waits for them to become uh, recidivists and confirmed criminals, and then puts them in prison, mm. where it, absolutely no good whatever is done except for the brief period when they're there. So none of that works, mm. because it, it's, and prison itself, increasingly run by the inmates, is not a deterrent to, to crime as a result, except for the sort of people who probably wouldn't commit crime anyway. Well, as Dr. Persanger, in a way, if your whole system is based on a sort of dislike of punishment, yes. you know, none of this is really going to Work, but in the end, we still have these places, and we have mm. this bizarre system where a liberal, a, a, a liberal criminal justice system has the fullest prisons, mm. uh, and, and and more of them than at any time in our history. As, and isn't that strange? Yes. That here we are. We're supposed to be tremendously liberal about punishment, but our prisons are full, and there are, and there are many, many more of them than there used to be, and it doesn't work. Uh, one of the ways that uh, we've just had the conferences, you know, one of the ways that the, you could always get a cheer out of the Tory, the Tory conference, maybe not anymore, was by saying you supported capital punishment. Do you, where, where do you stand on that, Peter? Do you, do you believe in it at all? Well, I think it has, it can be shown to be effective under certain circumstances, but it's intolerable unless you have certain preconditions. Mm. So, for instance, if you don't have a genuinely free and independent press, if you don't have genuinely independent-minded judges who are prepared to stop a trial uh, if they regard it as improper, and if you don't have properly independent juries of, uh, of mature citizens, then you can't have it. And in my view, we don't have any of those things now, really. We have the remnants of the free press. We have some <coughs> decent judges and some who seem to me to be prepared to sit in front of practically anything. And the jury has been eviscerated. The majority verdicts, for instance, mean that the whole plot of 12 Angry Men, the famous Henry Fonda film, is impossible. Uh, one person cannot, one person of conscience and strong character cannot prevent the wrongful conviction of somebody by simply standing up to them because the judge will say, I will accept a majority verdict and he can be uh, outvoted. Uh, the whole point of a jury is it has to be unanimous and in, in, certainly in a capital case that would have to be, have to be the case. Uh, people are prepared to, excite. the nature of prosecutions these days is often terribly emotional. You get the prosecutor and he spends an awful lot of time detailing the horror of the murder. Well, I don't doubt the murder is horrible, but this often is accompanied by an almost total lack of forensic evidence. Uh, for the, to, to show that the person accused is guilty. I, I, I fear that uh, an increasing number of people, and this certainly isn't just in homicide, are being convicted for things of which they would not have been convicted in a more effective criminal justice system, which is why my book has large sections on, on jury trial, for instance, uh, and, how, and how important it is and how, um, how again, uh, drained of meaning it is by the reforms of the past 50 years and it's astonishing how little protection. So while I don't doubt that capital punishment effectively and swiftly administered after a fair trial, uh, the, uh, the, the possibility of appeal and re reprieve uh, can deter homicidal violence, not homicide itself, but homicidal violence and the carrying of lethal weapons by criminals and would be effective in doing so. Uh, that in our current circumstances, it would be responsible to reintroduce it because, uh, first of all, 
it would be very, very hard to be sure that people had been properly convicted. And secondly, I don't think that the, uh, the, the legal and political professions would be prepared to take responsibility of exercising in any way. Mm-hmm. Because they, one of the reasons why it was abolished was because Home Secretaries uh, hated the responsibility and all politicians feared that maybe that would be a responsibility they might one day, f- they might one day have, to, have to undertake. So rather than do that, they thought it was, uh, they, they left the job mm-hmm. of capital punishment to armed police officers. Which is basically how we how we now carry out capital punishment in this country: um, police officers and prison suicides. Yes, we kill an awful lot of people in our, our, our criminal justice system, but it's mostly in prison suicides and then in people shot by the police. So if we don't. We, it's not that we have, don't have a death penalty; it's just we don't have one after due yes. process anymore. Yes. If uh, one, one, one wanted to start again or, and, and reinstate a, 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 a police force of the type we had. And it was until maybe, as you say, the mid mid last century. Um, there's no party on the horizon, is there, that's sort of going to do that? Well, people don't think about it. I, I regard myself as a one-man think tank for anybody who wants to try intelligent conservatism. I can tell you how to do it, but I, nobody wants to. It'd be interesting, by the way, when I um, after I published a brief history of crime and, the, and, and then rewrote his abolition of liberty, republished his the abolition of liberty, which it is now. Uh, still, I'm proud to say, in print. I pressed it into the hands of a number of senior police, police officers and one Home Secretary. Uh, and I never even got a letter back from any of them. Yeah. Not a thing. I don't think they read it. I think they just, uh, whether they chucked it in a bin, I don't know whether they kept it. I don't think they read it or were interested. Mm-hmm. Politicians and, and police officers are actually not very interested in these subjects as far as I can see. Yes. They think that the way we, the way things are now is the way they have to be, and therefore the way they must be and the way they're going to be. And uh, I um, tend to think that the, the task of almost all uh, public debate is to examine what you have against what you could have, and and try to see how you could get something better. On a, on a more general point, uh, you, you, this is obviously a big part of it, law and order, but you've often said that the Tory party uh, is the biggest obstacle to real conservatism in this country. Um, and I just wonder now, when you look at it and the way things have gone, are, are going, do you think it will it will destroy itself? Do you think the Tory I have no idea because I can't see, one of the things I can't see is the economic future of this country with any clarity. It looks very bad to me. Mm. Uh, and if you combine that with our pathetic education system, our, our equally pathetic criminal justice system, which we've been discussing, uh, if, if, if into that is introduced quite serious uh, economic dislocation, large-scale unemployment, real poverty of a sort not seen for many years, uh, I hate to think uh, what might happen to politics. Mm. I don't know. I. I Looking at the, the, the economic behaviour of the government before the COVID panic was quite alarming. And we constantly boast of what a rich country we are, but this is not real. I mean, our current account deficit with the rest of the world is, is appalling. Our trade performance is very bad. Our level of manufacturing industry, our power of recuperation is appalling. Our indebtedness, public and private, is, is astonishing. Mm. And our tax system verging on the confiscatory for an awful lot of people and incredibly heavy and will after the, the, the mm. coming changes be, I think, heavier than it's been at any time in, in, in more than half a century. So all this going on together, I think you have the ingredients of quite serious political trouble out of which who knows what might emerge. I don't know. I fear it. Uh, but one thing I can say for certain, the Conservative Party has a present constituted office, no defence against mm-hmm. these fears for me. I don't see in it or in the Labour Party any group of people who are, who are examining with cold and clear eyes the state of the country and trying to work out how they can save it from very, very serious and quite rapid decline. Yes. Uh, I suppose that uh, with this current Tory party, there have been things happening over the past year I, I, particularly it was the one, uh, it was the coming in between parents and their children. 
But all all utopian states inevitably do this. Mm. They have to because the thing we discussed earlier, the the family being the transmission belt of the older conservative common sense religious patriotic culture, and the new culture uh, coming into conflict with this. The the archetype of this is the the appalling public Morozov uh, episode in Soviet history, where a child who allegedly denounced his parents to the authorities and was then killed by his grandfather became a national martyr. And as subjects of reverence, the young pioneers were taught to revere him, and there was a statue to him in Moscow to which they used to go one day a year in parade in reverence to this, this little horror who denounced his own parents. And that's an extreme version of it, mm. but any utopian state must come into conflict with parental authority. Mm. It'll do it with the schools, it will do it very much with sex education, uh, which, as I, I think George Lukács, when he originally introduced it in in the Hungarian Bolshevik uprising of 1919 saw as a way of demoralizing society. Uh, but also, uh, the other thing we discussed, how the universities will turn people against their, their, their parents' views and turn out a new generation which doesn't gain its, uh, its thoughts about anything from, from its parents but from the state. Uh, and we are in the grip in, of the equality and diversity utopian state. Uh, marshmallow totalitarianism blooms. Enforced by the police force which patrols Twitter. <laughs> oh, yes. Very effectively. <laughs> Peter, thank you very much for coming and talking to us again. And, and um, I know that you are, uh, you, you're writing another book at the moment, aren't you? Yes, I'm writing a book. It's called uh, A Revolution Betrayed. Uh, it's about the destruction of the grammar schools mm. and uh, their replacement by a system which once again benefited the rich over the poor. And In the name, bizarrely, of egalitarianism. This will be out next year? I don't know exactly when it will be out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's well on the way at the moment. Uh, but like all books, it's turning out to be slightly different from the one I had intended because if you do anything remotely resembling proper research, you find there is an awful lot you didn't previously know. <laughs> one of the things I really didn't know anything like enough about, and I knew a bit, uh, was the secondary modern schools, uh, which are to this day portrayed as, uh, as an utter a disaster and if you want grammar schools back then you want secondary ones back which of course is in a way true mm. uh, but it, the misunderstanding of, of, of their role and position is, is quite extraordinary. Well I should really as a grammar school boy um, certainly. Thank you very much indeed. Peter. My pleasure. Um, that's it for this time uh, we shall see you next time in the, in the meantime please do subscribe won't you and uh, we look forward to seeing you next time thank you very much bye bye Thank you.